Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. There are whole industries in the cable news business, in book publishing, uh, in political fundraising uh, that are based on exaggerating and profiting from political discord. Commercialized contempt. This is Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland. There's huge incentives to move away from a conception of politics as about solving problems and uh, finding a workable center for the country and, and moving it to the extremes. This week, we saw extremes. Extremes of rhetoric, extremes of ideology, uh, extremes of tactics. As rioters breached the Capitol. Inside the Capitol building. And brought the government to a halt. Going through a barricade. We don't know what we're looking at yet. All of a sudden. Now, look at what you've got now. Is this the end of something or the beginning of something? We also saw fundraising messages from several Republican senators like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, who were raising money on the back of their objections to the Electoral College certification at the same exact time that the Capitol was being stormed by a mob perfect illustration of, of what I'm talking about. I, I think Trump represented, and he's extremely skillful, uh, the, this politics of contempt, uh, this industry of commercialized contempt. John Harris is Politico's founding editor, and on this historic Newsweek, he was trying to make sense of the scene that we saw play out on Wednesday. It's the kind of vivid scene that I think lodges in the mind and in memory and has an enduring meaning. That image of guns drawn and a standoff in the United States Capitol uh, is powerful. John, you've been in the news business and in Washington for a long time. You know that these days I take my satisfaction from feeling that I've got a perspective because I've been at this a, a, a good while now. As we watched the news unfold at the Capitol, where among a great many other people, there were several Politico employees doing their jobs, what was going through your mind? You know, to be honest, Scott, my initial reaction is to downplay, to hold at a distance. Like, well, this is just something minor. Uh, this isn't real. Order will be restored within minutes. When I saw the, the news alert of what had happened, I'm not somebody that is, spends a lot of time uh, hovering over cable TV, but, you know, so let's go see what this was about. And then seeing that arresting image of guns drawn uh, at the entrance to the chamber and realizing that this wasn't a minor incident, this was chaos uh, taking over the Capitol was really shaking to me. And uh, are people safe? You're right. That's the first question. And then the next question is, what do we do for readers? In my case, my, my obligation was a column. I had a kind of a different idea that uh, I thought was I was mostly done with. Of course, you have to throw it out and, and start anew. It was obvious that this was an event of, um, uh, of historic importance. Uh, I, I will say that some of the themes that had been 
on my mind even before this happened, uh, really in a sense were crystallized because of what was going on. Uh, this was in the wake of uh, Republicans losing both those seats in Georgia, Democrats uh, now in position to, to take over the, the Senate chamber. And, and so the idea of the end of Trumpism uh, and, and what this portends for the future of Trumpism was already on my mind, but it was so crystallized by what happened uh, there was a sense that this in some ways is almost the logical conclusion of the Trump years and that this underlined and put a period on something very important. The moment that that really, well, I mean, there were a lot of moments that shook me, but the, the, the first one really was I was sitting at home on, uh, watching on C-SPAN the Electoral College proceedings. I wanted to see what, what people were saying in their speeches. I had the sound on kind of low while I was editing something. But, you know, I, I tuned in for the McConnell speech. We're debating a step that has never been taken in American history. And some other stuff, and then turn the volume back down. And then a little later, I kind of heard, you know, in the corner of my mind, I heard them going into recess. Without objection, the chair declares the House of Recess pursuant to Clause 12B of Rule 1. I thought, well, that's kind of odd. You know, the, I think usually they just power right through these things. And then a minute or two later, I looked up from my computer, and, I, and they were showing the feed of the people decked out in pro-Trump gear just marching through the Capitol Rotunda, you know, on the, on the camera feed there. And the, the hair just kind of, like, stood up on the back of my neck. I was like, that, that, that's not normal. That's, that's really bizarre. And then the, the, the whole afternoon just kind of deteriorated from there. You know, Scott, there's a debate uh, I think a lot of journalists have had. Uh, I've certainly had it with journalistic colleagues as to how to view Trump. Do we view President Trump as somebody who is really about performance and he's enjoying his own act and yet he realizes that there's an element of performance or even shtick about it? And then you hold him up to the light in some, in, at some angles and, and that is indeed, I think, a common interpretation is often how I view him. You hold it to the light in a different way and you realize that this is something, uh, he represents a very fundamentally a serious challenge to our, our democratic customs and, and uh, uh, the different precedents and, and the notion of rule of law uh, that has, has kept the country together. I really default much more typically to the first interpretation. I regard Trump as the political equivalent of pro wrestling. It's bluster, it's body slams, but they aren't real. And uh, in its own way is a, an element of, a, of kind of grotesque entertainment, the way we think of, of pro wrestling. I think, to be honest, Trump sees himself in part this way. And I had the sense of uh, things galloping out of control, even from Trump's perspective. So wait a minute, uh, uh, this is going too far. People are taking me more seriously than I meant. In that moment, as you were thinking through that and realizing this, did that cause you to to reevaluate that previous conception of Trump that you'd had, and you know either what what you'd thought or wrote about him over the last four years? Uh, in, in different moments? Or, or did you think th this has kind of slid into something different now, that it, it, it wasn't this way, but now now it's kind of, pick your metaphor, the horse is out of the barn, what have you? Well, it brings home the consequences of a certain brand of politics that Trump represents. Uh, but Scott, I would say that they, that they precede, long precede Donald Trump arriving at the presidency himself. What I think of it, uh, this brand of politics, my term for it is, is commercialized contempt. Commercialized contempt. What do you, what do you mean by that, and what are the consequences of it? I, mean, I think the, the adverse consequences of it have been clear for a long, long time, because it means that we as a country have difficulty solving problems that need to be solved, uh, because we have all these incentives not to solve the problems, but to fight over them and to continue this 
cultural and ideological warfare. But the consequences really came home in a visceral way. The country looked like something most people, regardless of where they are in the political spectrum, they don't recognize. This is not the United States of America that I know. This looked like something in, in some kind of far-off developing land where you, you hear you know, protesters taking over the Capitol, questions about whether the, the results of an election can be respected, uh, questions about uh, whether a peaceful transfer of power can take place. Uh, th- those are common questions, Scott. <laughs> they aren't common questions to be asked about the United States. The thing that really jumped out at me is that the point of the mob that that did this was to prevent the presidential election results from being certified. And for a while, it was working. And that that was a really scary kind of uh, thought to be processing. And to the great credit of Congress that they came back on Wednesday night and and finished their work. Yeah, I felt that was a very powerful statement uh, from leaders of both parties. Whenever they started up again, it seemed like it was uh, kind of on the late side, 9, 10 o'clock. But I was watching and um, then went on for several hours. But they started the proceedings by saying, we will finish our work. We'll finish it tonight. We'll stay for as long as it takes. Uh, And I do think that was a powerful and a necessary statement. This day got disrupted, but the day won't be diverted. We're going to finish our work. So what what happens next year? I mean, I I think the first thing I've been thinking about is, Joe Biden is is getting sworn in uh, to be the next president of the United States in less than two weeks. Should we expect more chaos between now and then or after? Uh, you know, uh, the, we've seen social media networks now blocking Trump from using them over the next two weeks in, in an effort to try and prevent that. Feels like a, a tinderbox moment. Well, predictions are, are hazardous in any time, and they're especially hazardous in this time yeah. regarding this politician and regarding this movement. Uh, So I'll make some predictions, but I'll do so uh, with caution. It seemed to me that this really knocks the underpinnings out of the Trump movement. Uh, The Trump movement is diverse. It includes people who really take Trump seriously, genuinely have contempt for the established order, really mean it when they say that they're prepared to do anything, including violent uh, protest, to carry out to give expression to the anger and contempt they feel. I would say that part of the Trump coalition is is relatively small. There's a much larger group of people who, to some degree or another, they share Trump's uh, frustration and they they share his contempt with the established order, but they want politics to stay within established bounds. And uh, it was those people who were nearly as appalled by what happened as most Democrats and independents were appalled. I think it kicks the uh, pillars out from under the Trump movement. So you, you think this represents a new phase for the Republican Party, not just with Trump leaving office, but under these horrifying circumstances of, of his final days? I do. And I think power accrues in politics to people who win people who achieve their objectives. Ultimately, of course, the important objective is supposed to be about changing policy. Um, But the, the, the political objectives are about winning. And Trump's movement is not associated with winning. Uh, he, he won in 2016. The Republican Party faced a big setback in the midterm elections, in large part, I would say, as a, a response to Trump's polarizing style. Then they lost the presidential election. Now they've lost the Senate in these special elections. That's a lot of losing. And uh, the idea that Trump could could be a sponsor, an author, if you will, of, of that amount of, of defeat and retain allure 
for politicians in his own party uh, who, of course, want to win. They want to accrue power, not, not lose it. Uh, that seems pretty, to me pretty improbable. Trump's an impressive politician. <laughs> Let's not forget that for as, as controversial as he's been throughout his entire term, not once has he been above 50% in approval ratings, but for all of that, he got the second highest amount of votes in U.S. history. The problem with that is he's a great mobilizer for himself, also a great mobilizer for the opposition. And uh, it wasn't Joe Biden, uh, anything special about him, that gave Biden the first most amount of votes in U.S. history. It was Donald Trump. So he motivated his own party. He motivated even more intensely the opposition. So we have to give him his due. Having given him his due, I would say this is now a, uh, a movement uh, defined by defeat. The people storming the, the Capitol, we don't regard them as the, among our society's winners. There's not very many people that consider them attractive models. Uh, that was a ramshackle mob of losers. You don't build an enduring movement around a ramshackle mob. And you don't build a movement by losing elections. The only way to build a movement, an enduring movement, is to win elections. I understand the the, the kind of reasoning behind that. I, the, the thing that makes me skeptical about whether this is or, the, or this will really be a, a, a turning point for Trump and his movement and the way they're perceived is that the, the whole reason this happened on Wednesday is because people think the election was stolen. And the reason they think the election was stolen is that there's a completely separate media and social media and information ecosystem that many Republicans have bought into, uh, whether they really believe it or are doing it for political purposes. And and one is kind of laid out in the Constitution and one is an extra legal action. But the same things were motivating the majority of House Republicans who voted not to certify electoral college results and the people who stormed the Capitol earlier that day. And that just makes me wonder whether this really does end up being a an inflection point. I think it's always been a safe bet, unfortunately, over the past generation uh, to believe that this isn't the moment when things really change. This isn't the moment when the system gets a mm-hmm. reset. This isn't the moment when the toxins flush out of the systems. Many times uh, uh, over the past generation, we've had people say, oh, this is the moment after 9-11, far more profound moment. People said that, well, this will, this will cause politics to change. This will, this will end polarization. This will really unify the country. Of course, that turned out not to be true. There have been multiple occasions when people have described inflection points. And in fact, what we've seen is continuation, escalation of the, the brand of politics, which is all about dividing people and kind of inflaming these almost tribal antagonisms that are at the heart of our politics. So I think it's a safe bet, Scott, for you to be skeptical. I do think that this movement that was represented by those uh, those rioters at the Capitol is not an ascendant movement. It represents a decaying, dying kind of old order of politics. And, uh, you know, one would hope it's the last spasm uh, of something that's ready to die rather than uh, an ascendant movement. Um, but we just don't know. Where do you think the congressional wing of that movement goes? And how do you think the shift you're talking about manifests itself within this party, you know, the, the Republican Party that is, you know, out of power, but they're still going to have some amount of power? You know, they, the Democrats 
just won control of the Senate, but literally by the narrowest of margins. Uh, they've got a very narrow hold on the House, and they'll have the presidency. So, you know, the Republican Party is not going to control any of the legislative levers of power after Trump exits the White House on January 20th. But Republicans will still be a large minority force to be reckoned with in Washington. And so how do you think that plays out over the next weeks and months and years? Our our colleague David Siders wrote a story about how, you know, the, the previous time that Republicans lost the presidential election, the party launched an autopsy to try and figure out what went wrong and what they could try uh, to do to fix it. And now they, they didn't end up following a lot of the directives laid out there. But, you know, so far, there's no sense of at least institutional looking inward and trying to solve problems that we've been able to detect so far among the GOP. It's just been a sense that nothing's wrong. Well, in the Republican Party, I think there is a tension between people who think short term and people who think long term. There's no question that the short term incentives have been, and I would say still are, even in the wake of the rioting at the Capitol. The short term incentives really reward conflict. They reward partisan opposition and intransigence and don't especially reward moderating rhetoric, moderating ideology, or, uh, worst of all, sort of trying to solve problems and and negotiating in the center. Short term, the benefits are there for the kind of remorseless partisanship that that we've seen so often over the past generation. They're still there. It's a very, very uh, narrow majority that Democrats enjoy in the House. Republicans would uh, be making in self-interested ways, would be making a reasonable short-term calculation that said the most important thing we can do is recapture the House. The way to do that is to um, excite our base, make the case that uh, Biden is failing as president, then we'll regain one of those chambers. The long-term incentives, I do not think, are oriented that way. This is, country is becoming more diverse, becoming younger, more cosmopolitan in cultural views, the Republican Party under Trump is dominated by older voters, dominated by uh, white and culturally traditional voters. And so long term, that's not a, a great recipe for power. Losing the suburbs, that's essentially what happened with the House in 2018. That's how Joe Biden won in 2020. That's a huge long term problem for the Republican Party. And the way they would attack that problem is different than the kind of things they would do for short term gain. Uh, So that's an ongoing tension uh, in the Republican Party. I would say if you want to be optimistic about things is that I thought there was great reporting in the New York Times over the weekend looking at several different metropolitan areas and how Donald Trump, of all people, was able to increase his share of different minority votes, black men, Asians, Hispanics. You say, well, wait a minute, I thought Donald Trump was all about inflaming prejudices. Uh, How would he actually improve his performance over 2016 based on that kind of presidency? The reason I say it's optimistic is that I think people are motivated by uh, all kinds of of interests and ideas, and uh, they don't see themselves as belonging to voting blocks that just uh, uh, respond in almost a Pavlovian way uh, to um, what they're supposed to do. People can't be thought of as, uh, as just belonging to racial blocks or any other identity group. They'll respond to individual appeals. 
And the fact that we can't think of uh, Hispanic voters as a monolith, we can't think of Asian voters as a monolith, we don't, shouldn't think of African-American voters, even though uh, they trend overwhelmingly Democratic. We can't think of them as a monolith. I think that's a good thing because it holds out the promise that we can reshuffle the deck of American politics, that people respond to different sorts of appeals, and ultimately we're a nation of individuals, not a nation of groups. Donald Trump certainly was not following the prescription of that diagnosis. Even so, actually, Donald Trump did do some of what was called for, which is uh, expand the base beyond just older, whiter, culturally conservative voters. So a Republican politician who was able to build on that and was able to offer something to the country beyond just the politics of contempt and beyond just the, the, the politics of stalemate or the politics of disarray, would be a very potent uh, figure in the Republican Party. So, uh, you know, the fun thing about covering politics is it never stands still. Uh, there, there's lots of surprises ahead for us. Uh, I think it seems like for the past five, ten years or so, most of the surprises we've had in American life have been negative ones. I never thought that would happen, but it turns out something awful does happen. We're probably in store for some, mm. uh, some more attractive surprises. That is a hopeful way of, of looking at it. I, I know it's a cliche to say this week has felt like a month, but it really has. Things have been so crazy, so chaotic. We lose our frame of reference. Yeah. Uh, things that would have been inconceivable to us even a month ago, much less a year ago or a decade ago, things that would have been inconceivable now happen. And, and so we get, we get disoriented. John, thanks for joining us to try and find our way through it. I sure appreciate it, Scott. All right, that's our show. For live coverage and first-person accounts from my colleagues of everything that unfolded this week, visit politico.com. Our producer is Annie Reese, our senior producer is Jenny Amond, and our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like our show, then like it. Leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It helps new people find the show. And check out some of our other podcasts. There's Politico Dispatch, Politico Energy, and Pulse Check, just to name a few. We'll talk to you again next week.